Because awesome's overused. In honor of Earth to Echo, what film successfully manufactured wonder for you? I'm Katie Rich, and this sounds absurd, but Journey to the Center of the Earth 3D was the first digital 3D movie I ever saw, and I thought it was awesome. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and this is going to make me sound stupid, but there's a shot in Finding Neverland where the camera swoops up on the main kid when he's seeing the play for the first time, and watching him feel wonder made me feel wonder in that moment. I am at Patches, and I'm going to go with Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, because they make wonder there! I don't like your joke answers, Patches. <laughs> I never did you ever do see, joke Did you ever see Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium? Yes, I've seen it. You can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 29 for Tuesday, July 1st, 2014. Welcome to July, everybody. The year is halfway over. What have you done with yourself? Hopefully. Wow. Well, Segway. Give me what are we doing right now? What is what is, what is life? life? Oh, jigs. <laughs> well, you if you're wondering if you've wasted your 2014, you know what's a really great thing you can do with your year is write a review of this podcast. If you've already done it, thank you. If you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? It is fun, and we like hearing about it, and we will read your review on the podcast, especially since it's been a while since we've the had one to read. The greatest honor. The greatest honor of all is that we could say your name out loud, and probably David will mispronounce it. Actually, you know what? If you write a review, you tell us which of us you would like to mispronounce your name oh, when wow. we read it aloud on the podcast, and we will do you that honor. So what more could you possibly want? Other people would make that a whole Kickstarter thing, and we just, you just get that for free. Yeah, that's right. All we want is your love. So it is Korra season once again on Nickelodeon, which means <laughs> the legend of Korra. I was going to get more specific. I just I was, does that mean anything in. to anyone? It's does that Korra mean I can season. Hunt Korra now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, maybe I phrased that wrong. The legend of Korra has begun its third season on Nickelodeon, which is a surprise to everybody, including Mr. Patches and I, who uh, run a little podcast called Republic State Dispatch, RepublicStateDispatch.com. But basically, here's the sort of behind-the-scenes narrative, since you people can appreciate that. A, like a month ago, all of a sudden, episodes three through, I believe, six of the third season of Korra started popping up online in Spanish. And there were definitely new plots with new characters and things that people hadn't seen before. So uh, rather than sort of figure out where they came from, the fan community immediately sort of ate them up. And the way that sort of especially anime fans deal with things, as I've learned through doing the other podcast, is they fan subtitle things. So these things were instantly re-uploaded to the torrent community with uh, subtitles, even though they were the Spanish dubs of episodes. It turns out whoever was doing the Spanish dubs for Viacom leaked those episodes, which then put a strange pressure on Nickelodeon, who we always assumed were going to bring Korra back after Comic-Con, since Korra always does really well there. They could hold a, you know, full ballroom to themselves. Not quite Hall H, but Hall H is going to be packed this year, so don't even hope for that. But they could hold, like, a Firefly-sized audience, a Joss Whedon audience. It's a real thing at Comic-Con. So I thought they were going to, like, start the season somewhere in there, maybe show a few episodes at Comic-Con, maybe show the entire season at Comic-Con, something fun show like that. Show the entire season? What? How would you do that? Like, trap yeah, those kind people of in a room for a day? I mean, you could, like, have an event and show the remain. Uh, sorry, the remainder of the season if they were to start earlier or whatnot. They might actually still do that. That might not be too far off. Anyway. Um, for uh, so these, Yeah, these episodes got leaked. Korra Season 2 didn't do that well ratings-wise because it wasn't that strong of a season storytelling-wise. So uh, Nickelodeon and Viacom's solution was to dump th- the first three episodes of Book 3 and sort of start it really early on uh, in the year, earlier than we were expecting. So that happened last Friday at 7 till 8.30. We got the first three episodes of what I think will be a 12-episode season, Patches? 
Uh, probably 12 or 13 episodes, I would assume. Yeah, I think that has been announced. I'm just not remembering it off the top of my head. But I want to once again sort of ring the bell for Korra because where I feel like the second book had a lot to do with uh, sort of spirituality and, you know, sort of animated monsters and things that might have divorced for, uh, the show from what made the first season such good television and what I think the third season's re-embracing is it's now back to sort of being a modern fantasy metaphor about living in cities and living with different classes of people and different races of people, which it sort of took a departure from. But once again, it's doing something that game of thrones sort of fails to do which is bringing up real life issues in ways that spur conversation but doesn't feel like a betrayal of the characters can you give me an example I, yeah so like um them fighting going wars, to, by the way no wait what me no i said uh, dave's just, dave is oh yeah if david were here he'd be losing his mind right now <laughs> Yeah, probably. I was describing it to somebody who watches Game of Thrones but doesn't watch Legend of Korra. Is when Game of Thrones, you're sort of watching with bated breath, hoping your favorite character doesn't die. In Korra, you're watching to figure out what your favorite character does and hope that he or she doesn't fall in love with the wrong person. But like, that's a completely different character-based stake that I feel is not like tricking the audience with some sort of also. Uh, that's bait pretty and rare. I would, I would, I would dispute that fact. I'm not worried about oh, yeah? people falling in love. I'm worried about people failing more than dying or something or like epic catastrophe. It's about small failures. Well, but because it has but because it has character consequences, I would think. It's not like do you really think the world's going to explode at the end of a season of Korra? No, that's that's the magic. That's what I'm saying. As opposed it's to like, Game of Thrones like, where I feel a, like what what epic throwdown is about to occur or what universal implosion is 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 taking place. Korra is about like we can defeat evil, we can you know go against big enemies, but it's all about character failures, you know. In this season, you know, at, at the end of book 2 or season 2, uh Korra turned gigantic and fought Satan. That's basically what happened. She she became a kaiju monster and fought a giant Satan. And um, in book three, she is dealing with the fact that just because you beat the evil um, doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect because she is now a flawed leader in some people's eyes. She's, she hasn't fixed all the problems. So I don't think it's about love necessarily, about who's, who's falling yeah. in love with who as if it's some sort of CW show. I think that's I mean, I guess I way. should have said relationships if I said love, but it's more about the relationships these characters have with each other more than I'm worrying about, like, Game of Thrones, somebody's life, or, like, a summer blockbuster, who's going to save the world. Like, those are very rarely the thing that I'm interested in in Korra. Even in the action scenes, they find a way to make it, like, some sort of beauty or some sort of character moment, which I find very refreshing, uh, especially coming out of a Game of Thrones season that I think showed me, like, where it wears on a television show to be both fantasy and popular, which is that it's serving a whole bunch of masters where I feel like Korra is, it lets itself be a myth instead of trying to be, like, some sort of realist, bombastic TV show. What's interesting is that people can't get on board with this show as easily as Game of Thrones. I wonder why Korra has so many hurdles to face in terms of hitting the mainstream. You know, I'm shocked to this day that Game of Thrones is such a hit with people because it's some nerd-ass shit. That's like... It's what everyone was swearing off when I was a kid. No one would touch fantasy... You know, that's that's for nerds right. or whatever. And now it's, yeah, it's the Frodo, biggest show. Frodo on lives as a underground. Can movement. I can I give you my outsider argument? Having seen you know two and a half episodes of Korra, maybe and sure, do. Get, but so, I I also have a theory, so uh, I would like to okay. respond after. Sure, you're done. and then I'll debunk it as a normal person and tell you what I really think. <laughs> normal person, person? <laughs> you doubting my personhood? Anyway, <laughs> patches. What's your theory? Oh, no, I was waiting for you. I wanted to hear your your take. Oh. Well, I mean, so because basically two things. I'm curious if it aligns with what I'm thinking, yeah. 
I think when you say that the fantasy of Game of Thrones is something that people rejected when you were a kid, you're ignoring the presence of Lord of the Rings, which, you know, failed to really kick off a fantasy movie trend, but I think did prime a lot of people to accept fantasy that they find rich in characters or, you know, has political implications. For me, my entry point into Game of Thrones is that there's so much going on that has nothing to do with magic or having to understand this heightened world. It's about people scheming and trying to be loyal to their family or double-cross somebody. And I think Lord of the Rings has a lot in common with that, where there's fantasy elements that become understandable by character motivations that we can recognize and a bunch of human characters who act just like we would. And then there's a really shallow thing for me with Korra in that I associate that kind of animation with cheap cartoons that I would not have watched when I was mm. a kid that I didn't like. And it's really, it's not useful and it's not a critical point of view. And when I've watched Korra, I've enjoyed it. But when I see bits of it isolated, I look at it and think, yeah, that's not something that I'm interested in, which is, uh, you know, it's simple. But I think a lot of people probably do that, especially people who don't have a reason to try and engage with Which is so funny because there's such fervor and excitement over the big screen animation that we have, the movies that really stand out, you know, based on our conversation last week about kids' movies, quote-unquote. But they don't look anything like this. That. I it's mean, not about animation in general not being for adults. It's about that style of hand-drawn kind of herky-jerky. I mean, Korra's animation looks incredibly different from How to Train Your Dragon 2. That's true, but, I mean, we aren't that far off from... I mean, we were talking last week about how kids are raised on 2D animated Disney films. Is it that far? Is that is it that far cry from from what Cora is delivering, or is yeah, it the it anime really style the specifically? It, is it because the anime, it looks like the Japanese anime animation? Interesting. It looks like That's Japanese cool. animation, well, and it looks kind of like the X Men cartoons from the '90s. Like it looks like the stuff that oh, I wouldn't dis. have really liked when I was a kid. And it's no, it's super. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm not saying that I'm correct. I'm just like that is my initial. Reaction to seeing that stuff that I kind of have to get over when when I'm watching it. Right, I think too that Cora dropped the ball. Like, here's a show that was a phenomenon in the beginning, and I think um, it kind of blew up in its first season, and people were talking about it. People who underestimated this show, um, it, it it dropped onto people's radars. Suddenly, people were talking about it. People like Dave and I were taking it seriously and talking about it and talking it up, um, and it dropped the ball. I mean, I've never before seen a show that's really mucked up its its delivery underestimating the audience you know it was on saturday mornings and then it moved to friday nights because what that's like a primetime move it's trying to assert itself as a more mature show a show to be taken seriously and it was a wrong move and suddenly they were dumping episodes and no one knew what the schedule was and they didn't know what they had on their hands and again in in season three here dumping three episodes on a friday night with one week's notice i mean beyonce can do that uh, I don't know if television can do that, and I don't know if there's much precedence for that, especially if you want people to take you seriously. You can't just come out of nowhere and do that. And I think that's the major problem that Core is facing, becoming a legitimate show in a, in the pop culture conversation. I think you know people give me grief on Twitter all the time about like, oh, you're you are a loser talking about cartoons for kids, um, taking it seriously. People and really do I that. Wish someone else. Oh, yeah. I mean, our, our esteemed colleagues do that all the time. They're ribbing me for talking about Cora because it's for kids. It's a childish show on Nickelodeon. And I understand why they think that, but they're not giving it the time of day that they do to film, animated film. Um, and I think the problem is that there's no fanfare for it. It's not strategically placed. It's not coming out the gates like Game of Thrones. It's not coming out the gates like any cable show. Um, this should be a really big deal. And Dave's right. I mean... We laugh at Comic-Con, but that is a place to make a big stir. And if you're filling Ballroom 20, this gigantic hall at the San Diego Convention Center, that means you have the backing to make a, a really loud noise. And I don't know how you get it off Tumblr and put it into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's really weird because it's hard to find the show now they made it available to stream previous seasons right before the premiere but like it hasn't caught up to itunes yet no one at nickelodeon can answer my question as to why it's been completely pulled off itunes i'm being a very good reporter and investigating this issue which seems very minor but to see an entire show do you feel like nickelodeon just does do you feel like nickelodeon just doesn't have a viable digital strategy like because they're for kids 
That's really uh, weird. I think you are 100% correct. They do not know how to deal with the, the fact that a press person would want to cover this show or that, that a mainstream audience has such interest in it and how to have a relationship. I mean, if you're going to be a television show, I look at something like Penny Dreadful, which is really come out the gates swinging, you know, not doing great in the ratings each week, but a genre show that's capitalized on social media and has a ton of streams on Showtime streaming. Um, and it's just playing all of the cards right. How do you tap into all these audiences that would be interested in a show like Penny Dreadful that has absolutely no source material or obvious backing other than just like we're using you know, stock characters from your from famous literature or whatever, uh, public domain. Uh, and, and how do you call that audience? Well, you go to all the right spots and you touch on all the right points that your show has to offer and you, and you feed it to the audience in different ways. And Nickelodeon has no idea how to do that with this show because people like you, Katie, who love Game of Thrones, should be into Legend of Korra and people don't give it the time of day. And it's been botched so far back because of... Um, Avatar The Last Airbender. I think M. Night Shyamalan's Airbender movie was a huge... You have to come off that movie and rework your entire strategy. You can't unleash this show the same way, and it's a failure. Harsh fighting words. And this is a show I love. fighting words, download Republic City Dispatch featuring not me, but you guys. (laughs) Endorsed by Nickelodeon, I should say, on (laughs) coronation.com. You're, you're, you could join us anytime you watch the episode, Katie. We'd, we'd love true. to have you in we the mornings. Would. But now I don't know how to watch them unless I'm home on a Friday night. Start with Amazon Prime, watch all of The Last Airbender, and then go on <laughs> then go to Nickelodeon.com oh, no. and watch all no. of the- <laughs> It's worth it, man. Yes, this is Keith from Virginia Beach again. A lesser man would not have called back, I feel. I dropped my phone and then realized you didn't have a message review. Set up stop trying to be quick. My call was about movie trailer. Um, and with all the summer previews coming out um, on different websites and people looking forward to summer blockbusters and the trailer for Godzilla, which I think was uh, pretty amazing. Um, I want to know what you all look for in a trailer, uh, whether it's blockbuster or more kind of art house films. If you all watch trailers, um, and then what is it that you're looking to get from the trailer? Uh, for me, particularly what I responded to in the Godzilla trailer was that it showed kind of an artistic signature, which got me excited about the film. Um, and so I think with blockbusters, that's the main thing that I'm looking for. Um, and I guess also kind of, if you're all interested in talking about, uh, our spoiler culture and extended trailers and multiple trailers and, you know, new trailers being released every week in build up of the film. Um, anyway, just, I uh, wanted to hear your general thoughts on that. Uh, thanks a lot. Everybody get that? Yeah. So, Dave, who was that? Got it. So that was Keith, and uh, there's a little bit of uh, backstory, which is the beginning of his voicemail. He talks about calling back. Uh, this is the second. His first message is five minutes long. He gets about two sentences in, and then you could hear him drop his phone, and then there's just <laughs> key sound noises. So, Keith, thank you for calling back. You did the right thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm very impressed. We owe him so much. Yeah. But I think he basically had two questions. One is he wants to know what each of us is sort of looking for in a trailer that sort of gets us excited. And then the other was about sort of the spoiler cultures or what I guess would I would paraphrase as over-trailering where we start getting different cuts and TV spots the closer we get to release. And if that's bad, uh, let's start with uh, Katie. Well, I actually watch a lot fewer trailers than I used to because I'm not writing about them as much. And I'm thinking right now of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Or, no, yes. New one, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. That's the one that's about to come out. Um, I have, no, I've Dawn very is about to come out. Wait, oh, yeah, you're right. Wrong. Sorry. Oh, my God. My point is that I have watched very few trailers for it, as evidenced by my lack of knowledge of even what the title is. Um, and that's not for lack of interest. It's because I just haven't come across it. And at this point, I'm kind of excited to see what I don't know about the movie. And I'm not really... 
antsy about spoilers. Like I kind of accept that spoilers are just going to happen and there's going to be certain things that just get promised to you and you know that they're coming. But with something like Godzilla, which you brought up, which I agree is really arti- has shows an artistic vision and is really exciting because it's something different. I watched that trailer maybe once, but there wasn't a lot that I was expecting. And I think the tendency of especially blockbuster trailers is to show you at least a clue about the big money shot scene at the very end so that you know to you're kind of waiting for something in particular to happen. And I didn't used to mind that happening. But in the last couple of months when I've been able to see huge movies and not knowing to be expecting that moment, it's been such a huge pleasure to be like, oh, wait, I thought this movie was over, but we get one more thing. And then that can backfire <laughs> if the movie's not any good and you're kind of dreading waiting for that moment to happen, which I feel like has happened at some point recently. Um, but I like avoiding trailers to a certain degree, but at the same time, there are certain things you can't keep me away from. And there's a level of surprise that for certain movies I found is really worth it. Patches. Um, I feel like I've also been watching trailers less, mostly because I'll, I'll watch trailers for like really big movies and smaller ones. I'm just like, I don't, I'm going to see this movie. I, I, don't need to watch the trailer and that is i i know that i'm jaded here in a way that i i know that i'm going to see the movies so maybe i don't have to pick and choose as much as other people like trailers are essential and i think we forget that that people need to get a taste of the movie and and put their bucks towards something and gamble a little bit on what we see in the trailers and i think a lot of people who, who write about this kind of stuff forget that um what do, what do i need out of a trailer um, I actually I was thinking about the Looper trailer, not to or the Looper teaser the other day, which is not like style heavy. You know, Godzilla almost sets up impossible expectations because of the sequence it's teasing in its trailer. Um, you know, I don't think it was pervasive through the entire film. That kind of style, it was just that very much that one moment. And actually, I recently I just saw Tammy, which is all basically just one scene uh, that that you're kind of waiting for the whole time. Like, how important is this moment from this trailer, which is the entire trailer for this movie, into the fabric of this movie, to this film? And you kind of wait for it to come and see how influential it is. And it's a little distracting. Um, so these sort of things that I found. You know, I, I see people root for like just give us a big taste of the scene, um, or just a one moment. Uh, doesn't seem as very effective sometimes because it sets uh, the wrong kind of expectations. But I like Looper because it's breaking down the trailer. It's giving me a taste of the style, and importantly, it's giving me like the first act breakdown. And I think that's always important. Um, just giving me the beginning information that I need. And if you can make the first act of a movie seem really exciting, uh, I don't know. I get very enthusiastic about what's to come or what I don't know. And I feel like maybe the Guardians of the Galaxy trailer has been doing that pretty well. I don't really feel like I've been seeing a ton of that. But I'm also avoiding all the, like, TV spots and see five minutes from this movie kind of thing. I don't really know why they put it out there. I assume that that's an internet SEO game where they're just trying to get all sorts of phrases and put it in front of people who might not have seen it the first dozen times. And if you're an obsessive, it'll seem like overkill. But if you just kind of go with the flow, it's not a big deal. See, since I started watching Bar Rescue on Spike, I've been seeing Guardians of the Galaxy ads all the time, and I love seeing Glenn Close every single time. So I, that's not what they're trying to do by putting that out on Spike, but it is working on me. <laughs> I like watching trailers, I though, me- I have to say. I mean, I, I enjoy it. It is it is its own little art form. I really like the Cloud Atlas trailer. Oh, man. And if David was here, he'd be losing his mind, but I feel like I can <laughs> freely say that. I mean, that's definitely how I started like reading more about movies. I was just watching movie trailers online when they first started popping up, and like it was just taking me all over the internet to a lot of different voices. So I have to, I owe it to trailers, really. I think that for me, it's a very complex relationship between both of the subjects, which is that I think what makes a good trailer and spoilers are very much intertwined because <clears throat> whereas sometimes Patches looks for movies to be poems, I would much rather a trailer be a poem that tells me what sort of movie I'm selling into. I don't think it needs to have <laughs> the same feel as the entire movie necessarily, but I do think that you need to tell people what the crux of your movie is 
uh, things like Brave. Very sad that there wasn't anything about bear transformation comedy in it. I always got to get that Brave reference in there. But how is that dollars. poetic to be that on the nose? I mean, that seems to go against what you're saying. And I think people ran into the, the same problem recently with the Rover trailer, which is very poetic and, and full of imagery and brooding. And yet... The movie, I mean, maybe it teased exactly that. It was just kind of a series of images, just like the trailer. But I mean, you fault on the side of being bombastic because no one's going to remember. Like, people remember a few trailers, but honestly, if you go back and look at, like, the trailers from the 90 mo- 90s movies you like, all just across the board crappy. Like, we had our same obsession with, uh, electronic music then, except it, instead of dubstep, it was like jungle and trance for like every hardcore movie with quick cuts. So it's like you're gonna be out there in this space where you're you're the advertising morsel that is attempting to be art, and you're at the very least gonna be advertising, but only if you're perfect can you be art. So you might as well reach for it with all your crazy tools and use every shot in the movie. That's what I say. I'm spoiler proof. Just- I would rather be th- I would rather you earn my ticket with a trailer so I feel okay with wherever your movie's gonna go and whatever you need to do to bring that to It me, seems like your movie should have enough in the beginning of it to not have to really spoil anything. Anything that could be deemed spoilers. By well, people. let's not let's not put so much onus on the trailer to dictate what's in the first act of the movie patches. I feel like that's bad, bad mojo. Why? What do you mean? Because then, because then you run into stupid things like Robert McKee's story, where it's like, open to page twenty-six. Here's what should be happening. It's like, no, that's not how good stories are told. Sell me on the story with a lot of flashy visuals and maybe a dubstep song I like, and I'm yours. I don't. I don't think. I don't think you're understanding me here. I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's that cut and dry. What I'm saying. I'm saying introduce the story and introduce the characters, and if like if you have uh, an energized story, then there should be stuff in the beginning that seems as kinetic and fun as the end, but the end might be bigger. Perhaps I don't know. The point, what, I, what I'm really getting at is, I don't look for movies to be poems. Asshole. <laughs> okay. Well then, we'll just end with... Bomb. The earth, the earth, the earth is on fire. We don't have no daughter. Let the motherfucker burn. This week for segment three, I wanted to look forward over this holiday weekend. Some of you guys might have heard, but up until Michael Bay's Transformers decided to bomb the box office, we were having a slightly lackluster year, even though we've had uh, like different number one movies every weekend. We're just not making that much money at the box office, and like people are cutting their TV subscriptions to go streaming. Everything's upside down in media pop culture world. And I thought that us being the smart sponges that we are, absorbing all the backstories and the weirdness and reading all the Wikipedia pages, that maybe we would be the right people to point everybody in a general direction, at least of discussion, if not of necessarily action, in what I will call media manifestos and should it be successful we'll do it again and should it not this episode will go away for forever uh but i wanted to talk i guess to sort of kick off with an example i wanted to talk about one i guess my first manifesto maybe i'll bring another one maybe this will be enough but i feel like uh we've been losing sort of the community experience of cinema you have you know the movie theaters which if you're a teenager you're probably going still going to to make out and who's going to blame you because i don't think internet cafes ever became a thing and oxygen bars went away so i digress people made out in I oxygen like, bars well it's just places you could hang out that you don't have to be 21 for but you could get like a shadowy seat in the corner if you made out in oxygen bars in please leave us a voicemail i want to hear about this what would you like to hear about making out in an oxygen bar, Katie? Did you make out in an oxygen bar? I have made out in an oxygen bar. I just bar. did not know they were ever prevalent enough for teenagers to be making Wait, out in them. Wait, with like we'll the talk tubes about this in your nose? Or... Yeah, were you hooked up to yeah. oxygen while making out in an oxygen bar? 
I'm like visualizing. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining Sleep Dealer, or no, the like back room of Inception where you all are plugged in, but you're making out. <laughs> I have never set foot in an oxygen it. bar, so I have really no idea what this is. Colorado must have been a weird place. They have them it on the was. East Coast. Go to Atlantic City or Ocean City, New Jersey. You can go to an oxygen bar, and there are like flavored the South oxygen. Didn't need that shit. It'll be like it'll be like roses. Just inhale straight oxygen and get you a little high. And in, in Dave's case, make out with the nearest girl. Meanwhile, yeah. well, I was dating those. her to be fair, and it was pine scented for me at the time. Why would I you very... get pine scented? You can get the, you can get that <laughs> at like a, a gas station. You should go something like fancy. You're trying to woo this girl, or is this a one-time hit? <laughs> I mean, I had pine scented. I don't know what she was smelling. But Wait, you she couldn't smell her it. oxygen while you were making out with her? No, no because her tubes in her nose. nose. Yeah, yeah. But like it's when you've gotten oxygen. close enough to. Sm- All right, I need to learn how an. You should have swapped bars. tubes. I think. Yeah, making out an oxygen bar means swapping here. tubes. <laughs> we have my my suggestion this is on not topic. that we put oxygen bars back in movie theaters. <laughs> although it could be if anybody wants there to be wait, mine. oxygen bars suggestion. were in movie theaters. Hang on, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Alamo Draft House presents oxygen bars. Oxygen, yeah, bars. oxygen bars. But the Alamo, I think, is a good a good example. But I like where their places in cinema is like a theater where they are very curated around the experience of watching movies i'm talking more about like cinematic experiences so like this weekend um i got to go to the spike lee do the right thing anniversary block party because i live in the neighborhood and it was weird and not really my scene as a cinephile it was much more uh, this neighborhood scene but it was cool to sort of be there and have something in common with everybody that I could talk to, even if it was briefly for like half an hour. And I think during college, I would go and we would watch like a 24 at a bar. And um, when I heard about this thing, it was like, oh, we watch 24 at a bar. And every time Jack Bauer kills somebody, everybody gets a shot. I didn't go for the longest time because I'm like, I actually like 24. I'd like to watch it. And then I went and I was surprised because everybody was just very quiet and respectful, except during commercials when it became a bar that was very obsessed with 24. So I would like, if I controlled my media manifesto, I'd like our small suburban uh, centers to start collecting around communities uh, for media in some sort of way. I, I would love for it to be revivals. I realize people don't have like access to that. But, like, anything that is, like, even if you want to all get together and stream Orange as the New Black in the same place when it drops, or something as simple as that is, like, bringing something that is being isolated and isolated by video on demand and streaming and iPods and uh, Don't DVDs colleges and do this? Things. Don't colleges already do this? I feel like I when we bars went to college, do this, too. I've seen did. Brooklyn bars do this. Yes, I, I mean, I would love for that to just go out to more communities. I mean, I've been talking to, I have friends in Colorado, and they have an Alamo there uh, that they have fallen in love with because it was filling a void that I didn't know didn't exist for them. Now I'm going to get a whole bunch of emails. Actually, you know what? I'd like your emails about uh, these sort of things uh, that are in your town. Or you could tweet at uh, Fitwer, but that, that you would know, be my first. You know what you're making me think of that uh, Boyhood actually reminded me of is a Harry Potter midnight, midnight release parties, which were such, you know, it's not really about film or television, but they were such an event and they were such a thing that, like you're saying about uh, TV watching, usually reading a book is an isolating thing. And they were so fun. And something like that, I mean, I wasn't really a kid when this was happening, but I got to be around a bunch of kids doing it. And there doesn't seem to be anything quite like that that has emerged in the wake of Harry Potter. I was about to say, how how old were you when you were going to a Harry Potter midnight? Oh, like parties? well, like out of college. They're super fun. Have you never? Did you never do that? No, I never went. I'm an adult. What? What? You never went? I went to like yeah. four through seven. I picked up my last book and then how embarrassed were you when Noble. you went? Were you embarrassed? What? I was were like with my roommate or? and like four of our friends and like a bunch of our <laughs> other friends gave up and went to a Dwayne Reed. It was great. You were a snob. There's still a YouTube video of me getting interviewed by a fake Hagrid in Union Square <laughs> the day Book 7 was released because I was like one of the first 200 people or something. Yep, I was I was in Union Square right there. I was too busy playing really Counter-Strike. Find it on the YouTube. Locked in a dark room. Patches, you missed out. No wonder you don't parties. understand people.
Yeah, Katie, what what do you have to what do you have to say? You, okay. What are your ways to make the world better? So I like your idea a lot, and I think mine is not quite as realistic as what you're proposing because I don't. Are we supposed to be proposing realistic things, or is this kind of anything goes? No, I, you could think as big as you need to think. Okay, so I say that every director who is making a comedy should make a romantic comedy, like like a one for one thing. Like if you come with whatever your idea, Paul Feig for the Heat Two or whatever, you have to make a rom com in addition to it because I think the romantic comedy has died a really undignified death. I am grateful for Nancy Myers and all of her crazy rich person kitchens for keeping it alive to some degree, but there are so many variations in it, and then every time a good one comes out, everyone falls all over themselves to be excited about it, and that's only because people aren't willing to make them and they're cheap and at a time when as we keep learning movies like Transformers that get made for a ton of money have to be for everybody rom-coms can be for a really specific audience I mean for Americans or for urban Americans or you know for think like a man too for black Americans it can be really interesting and specific which is the kind of thing that studios don't really do they don't do specific person stories anymore and also we have a lot of really charming famous people who deserve to be in rom-coms together uh, our friend joe reed has the idea that richard Cur- curtis should make a gay rom-com with domino gleason and james mcavoy i could uh. not be more behind this idea um so yeah quota system if you make any comedy you also have to make a rom-com what you make it about your casting choices the tone all of that is up to you just don't let the rom-com die it's one of the things that the american studio system used to do the best and i don't think we should let go of it yet so do you think we're ready for wait wait do you think we're ready for multi-gendered rom-coms such i mean wait like multiple people or like people who identify as multiple genders like what are we talking about or just the same structure but stretched into the modern definition of what a gender is. Oh, like oh, a, like a trans person as one like, of the characters? Oh, yeah. Not polygamy, no. <laughs> like, like, just a, people like, read a, I mean, maybe polygamy, but like I'm just a talking trans about... How, how, yeah, how narrow is your one-for-one rom-com thing? How narrow is your definition of rom-com? Oh, extremely broad. I think you need, I think the wonderful thing about the rom-com is that you can do a ton of different things. You can have bringing a baby, which is like a crazy caper, or you could have the apartment, which is really sad and serious and incredibly well-structured. There's a huge variety in there, which is what makes it so good. The main key is get charming people who you want to see together, either being charming or stretching themselves, or just people who you want to see root and root for to be together it's super simple and uh that's why i feel like every director who wants to make any kind of comedy can then stretch themselves to make it a rom-com so it'll be like, like scorsese one, one f- make it'll a be like one for me one for you one for rom-coms one for katie one for this insane quota that for some reason we have signed into law <laughs> why why does I nicholas like- sparks get to make movies like so many movies those are rom-coms though again. that's I, no, I know. I That's mean, what I'm saying. If Nicholas Sparks can make movies over and over and over again, you feel like there's room for rom-coms done right, or that don't have to be crass or Catherine Heigl-led, or like there yeah, seems like that you could really... do something that hits the Nicholas Sparks audience in the same way, right? They like to. I laugh. mean, I would argue that I would argue that the Nicholas Sparks audience is what was keeping the Catherine Heigl rom-com boat afloat for a long time and I don't like I hate pitting it on her that they no I mean I think it's a similar group of people it's like you go in for the weep or you go in for the cry Um, I don't want to blame Catherine Heigl for that genre kind of petering out recently although she starred in a bunch of bad ones but yeah I mean don't don't aim for Nicholas Sparks aim for better aim for the uh I mean, I, I haven't seen 500 Days of Summer in a while, but I thought it was a good movie last time I saw it, so I'll use but that. But they're, they're the audience that. that makes these movies successful. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, you don't have to yeah, target they, them, but you have to tap into them if you're going to be a yeah, successful romantic that movie or a also, small movie that the studio's making. That audience also probably saw all 500 Days of Summer, which is what made it such a hit. So you can be a little weird. I don't think they saw They Came Together, unfortunately, but... yeah. They came together. I still haven't seen They Came Together, actually. I should uh, see that before. It's a wonderful I movie. Out the I mean, it's a great rom-com, too. It's very genuine. You would be. So, I mean, Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler could probably star in an actual rom-com together, but uh, I think I'm kind of surprised they, they haven't. We got it from this movie. It's very sweet. Patches, what's your manifesto? What's my manifesto? Well, I, I was, like, lost on this topic. I was very bad at coming up with something like this because I didn't really understand the prompt, and it was all... I don't know. I didn't have... A, nothing popped out to me, despite Dave thinking that this was, like, tailor-made for my opinions. But I was thinking, <laughs> may, maybe I have something here, and you can help me shape it into a manifesto. Um, earlier this week, I got... 
I, not an argument, but a, a critical conversation um, with a colleague of ours about the show The Leftovers. This girl writes for a site called Mike. I don't know. I, I don't frequent it, but uh, many people do, apparently. Formerly known um, as so, Policy Mike, right? Uh, oh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, I believe this so. Girl, yes. So um, this girl, Elena Shepard, very, very bright writer, um, wrote something about The Leftovers that was like, well, this is kind of over, right? Like, this is not, this isn't working. It's It's done. Like, from the get-go, episode one, it's kind of not functioning in the way that we need a show like this to function. And part of that was filling a void left by Mad Men and Game of Thrones and, you know, not giving enough answers or not giving us enough information from the get-go. And I just keep thinking, like, man, there's no way this show is going to fill a void like Game of Thrones. Like, I I mean, that's asking an indie movie to fill the Lord of the Rings legacy, right? Um, And I can understand her feelings because if you cover television all the time, you, like... I mean, they pull out all the stops for Game of Thrones. This is setting the bar in some ways. I need people to make room in their lives, like their pop culture lives for big and small. And I mean, that's such an obvious thing when we talk about it all the time with movies. You know, we want giant blockbusters to be good, um, but we we want so that we can want them in our lives instead of detesting them. And for people to see small movies with intimate stories and made by filmmakers with a vision. But I feel like TV... Uh, we want the same thing, and we don't talk about it as much, perhaps, because the small shows are either written off as, like, ABC family dramas that The New Yorker and Emily Nussbaum are always going to bat for and no one seems to watch, um, or or their parenthood on NBC, a schmaltzy show that no one will give the time of day, uh, and yet is, is That has run good. for, like, six seasons. It's run for six like, seasons without anyone watching You're saying no one's giving it the time of day. It. Well, I mean, someone's watching it. It's been on for six seasons. I mean, it's just like, not are you talking the about giving it the time of day in terms of like, yeah? So, so you're talking about cultural conversation, not like people actually watching it. Maybe, but I mean, I I, I don't think Parenthood ever had great ratings to the point where it would be no. noticeable. Like, it needs to be big enough that people notice, so people actually talk about it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Game of Thrones is a blockbuster television show, so it gets all the all the discussion and Mad Men is like the top of that critical bar too. Uh, so every, all the conversation is directed towards that. If it, and if it, and for some reason TV is like, if it's not that good, then what is the point? Or if it's not that show, I, what's the point? And I we're at like, a point with television like- that it's all water cooler talk. It's all about like what happened on last night's blank. And if it wasn't something momentous, then we don't have the time of day to talk about it. Like leftovers is a show that is slow cooking, uh, and it's not perfect. It's not a perfect pilot. But then again, who has a perfect pilot? Uh, but we're at this point where if you're asking it to fill Game of Thrones shoes, it's not going to, and it can't. It will. It was never going to be that show to begin with. And it, and if I think you're if water or if non water cooler talk shows can't exist, that seems like a defeat. That seems to be against this quote unquote renaissance of television. I think you're overvaluing the idea of water cooler talk and the survival of shows like The Leftovers. I mean, look at Looking, which not only was not, you know, huge critically discussed, but almost somebody watched it. It still got renewed. And Girls doesn't get watched by that many people, and it's still discussed. Well, that's because it mean, has a protector and, in HBO. I but, mean, we're lucky that Leftovers... Well, yeah, on, but so does The Leftovers. But, but, like, are you worried about The Leftovers not lasting because it's not as huge as Game of Thrones? Because I think HBO is smart enough not to try I'm, I'm less worried about Leftovers continuing and not having the breathing room it needs... I do think HBO will give it that. I'm more worried that if you don't have the next Game of Thrones or if you don't have the next blockbuster TV show, I mean, networks are certainly not taking any chances on that. You don't, I don't really see a network trying to replicate the success of Mad Men on the scale and storytelling level, on the veneer. Like, Pan Am. The, the, you know, they, Pan had the, yeah, Am. they had Pan Am. They had Playboy Club, these big glitzy shows trying to emulate it. But you don't see any the networks taking a chance on anything that's not going to have a shocking ending every episode. I mean, that more and more, that's just disappearing. What? And I think, it's, I think it's an audience problem more than a network problem, not really being able to give a show the time of day. It's, it's also interesting because take um, the new Boy Meets World show, Girl Meets World. You know, you, the networks don't have room for family sitcoms because they just don't make an impact anymore. They're not playing to social media, They're oddly enough, which Boy Meets World, you'd think it would. But Girl but again, Meets World got huge ratings. Success. 
Right, right. So why is it not on Nick? Why is it so not on ABC? Fine. I, I guess. Because, I guess ABC, but it's, because, a, because ABC isn't airing family shows. It's airing Shonda Rhimes shows, and ABC Family is pretty profitable might, for them. You might be right. And the Shonda Rhimes And also, you watch, the, like, you watch The Good Wife. Like, The Good Wife has been on for multiple seasons, and it has water cooler moments often, but sometimes it doesn't. And it's, got, you know, it's stuck around and has right, its, it's devoted Right, it's prevailing. I, you're right. I watch Good Wife for that exact reason, because it's one of the few shows that doesn't require water cooler moments as much. It has one or two, and so then it really pops. You don't like things are, to be interesting or surprising, is what you're saying. I, I actually am kind uh. of sa- I am kind of saying that. I'm like, could there be <laughs> more boring television? Like, why does stuff have? Where to Where is your murder? She wrote reboot. Well, it's so funny because that's why I enjoyed the book, The Leftovers, too, and that's what I really wanted out of the series. The book, I mean, Katie, you've read it too. Um, not a mm-hmm. lot happens, and it's really just kind of hanging out with these characters and seeing what happens on a day-to-day basis, considering the fact that a lot of people just disappeared. And you want the show to be that in some way. You just want to, like, follow this family. I just want a good family show, you know what I mean? Just, like, hang out with these people and see them grow up and see them deal with problems and take it day by day instead of, God, who's going to die or, like, are we going to get some answers around here? I just hate that mentality, and we only fuel it by comparing it to Game of Thrones and complaining that we don't have... It's so funny to see people complaining that Leftovers doesn't give them enough answers when that was what annoyed everyone about Lost. Yep. Hmm. I feel like, Patches, what you're reaching for... Yes, I ask people to like, shape this for me into a manifesto, so... So, like, you have all these shows that you enjoy... And that you feel that occasionally them and other shows pander by having this much watch, must watch event that you feel that it shouldn't have to, you know, pull its dog and pony show in order. It should be able to investigate on its own terms, its own characters, sort of in a way. Which is interesting to me because it's like that's why I really plugged in with something like Silicon Valley is because I realized that the characters were in a sitcom loop where they're going to start every episode being a whole bunch of nerds and then think they're ready to get close to something being taken away from them at the end. And that's what I miss from things like Good Simpsons or King of the Hill being on right. or, you know, something that like old school sitcoms that, you know, we talk down to them now because we're in the age of serialized narrative, but they were, all they had to go on were their character eccentricities that revo- rewarded you taking the time to being able to pull them out uh, by being a repeat viewer. So it's like, uh, to me, you can have your cake and eat it too in current television because there are good enough stories out there. For me, if I were you, I'd be furious that people are watching like reality television or whatnot for their blow-off-the-steam, quote-unquote, guilty pleasure thing because that's the time they should be taking to investigate shows Mm. that... Well, I will say that I think Orange is the New Black fills this uh, void in some ways, although I also blame us culture writers. Actually, I I guess throughout this segment, I have been blaming us culture writers for kind of trying to mine something as simple and enjoyable as Orange is the New Black for kind of every ounce of talking point. You know, what I like about the show, the least favorite part is the Piper storyline, because that always seems to be stirring up trouble or bombastic storytelling. Um, And though, although I won't spoil anything that happens in season two of Orange is the New Black, because not everyone's gotten there, but I mean, it takes some left turns that I think are very uh, driven or reactionary to cable television. I'm like, like no one should die on this show, right? Because we're just chilling in a prison and people have that dynamic and it's all about these characters clashing. And yet, you know, it has to go and go crazy sometimes. And I feel like that, it doesn't need to do that. So even the shows that seem to start off simply, um, are kind of veering towards the cable mentality, the game of Thrones mentality to compete with that for like, internet space and hopefully we can all get over that eventually so you're trying to put me out of a job huh yes exactly i'm putting all of us out of a job i mean i need to uh i need to do these things unfortunately not me teen mom 2 coming (laughs) back this july you were just condemning reality television and now you're pimping teen mom (laughs) 
on this podcast. I was talking about I was talking about what what I wanted to happen, <laughs> not what is happening, which is I am fine. Oh gotcha. Manifestos. <laughs> does it for today's fighting in the war room matt patches will be back later this week to talk about tammy i think he's got like a lot of surprises in store for you yes. yeah it's going to be matt patches reenactment of tammy word for word uh we're going to be we'll hold the script to check his check it um and also it's going to be fourth of july weekend so happy fourth of july those of you in america and we'll have a tammy review for you all the same because that's how much matt patches cares about you and he would like you to know i do not care enough about you to have seen tammy and uh, i feel fine about that you're awful <laughs> uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, the only person who's seeing Tammy this week. Um, <laughs> I write all across the internet. I put everything on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And uh, as Dave mentioned earlier, we, we are currently doing a podcast about the show you're not watching, Legend of Korra, uh, called Republic City Dispatch. But if you want to get in on that, I still think there's time, Dave. Don't you think so? That you could probably start from, like, season one and catch up. That's what July 4th they is all about. They bought four seasons, so if you don't get on board this year, we're not done yet, and it's going to be great. I'm pretty sure it's all on Amazon Prime, so you can catch up there. Uh, and remember, Fighting in the War Room has a very strong online presence, uh, unlike The Legend of Korra. Uh, we have a website. It's called fightingintheworldroom.com. We have a Facebook page. It's called facebook.com slash fighting in the war room and on both places you can leave comments and you can share and you can do all sorts of things to get the word out on fighting in the war room or yell at us and be really mean because uh, we need some of that in our lives too so fighting in the room.com i'm dave gonzalez spell that first part da7e that is also my twitter handle i write about superhero movie news and star wars at latino-review.com and also do republic say dispatch with patches on the weekends as long as Legend of Korra is running. You could give us a call like our good friend Keith at 914-410-6450. Tell us your song of the summer. Just give us a topic. Badger Katie, if you hear the phone pick up and tell you to leave a message for Opkino, all of it's welcome at 914-410-6450. Um, I'm Katie Rich. I'm going to tell you a couple things, including that you can find us all on Facebook, where David tells us that we're a big fa- happy family. It's at facebook.com slash fighting in the war room. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R. You can find me on Twitter, too. Hang on. I'm changing it up, you guys. Find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And you can tweet either at me or Fitwer to answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Earth to Echo, what film successfully manufactured wonder for you? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with fireworks talking to you on Friday. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not something without a fight. <laughs>